from their studio in the Feeding Arizona building in Youngtown, Arizona, it's the Boomer and the Babe Show with Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. Join Pete and Deborah and their guests as they give voice to 78 million baby boomers from coast to coast and border to border. Now here are the Boomer and the Babe, Pete Peters and Deborah Brown. And indeed, welcome to the Boomer the Babe Show. Coming to you from our offices in Sun City, Arizona, offices and studio in Sun City, Arizona. Uh, this is Thursday, February 14th. It is Valentine's Day, and happy Valentine's Day to all of you out there. I hope you are finding the love of your life. Uh, and if you're not, I'm hoping you're finding your love of the day. Uh, so that's uh, that's kind of the way I'm looking at it right now. Uh, let everybody just go have have a little love today. Uh, it is 11 o'clock here in Arizona. It's 10 o'clock in California, where our guest is, and it's 1 o'clock on the East Coast. I hope they're having their their Valentine's cocktail party uh, maybe then soon to go into the evening, and wouldn't that be wonderful, Lisa? Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> and that's the voice of my guest, Lisa Bahar. Lisa is a psychotherapy expert, and uh, we're going to be talking to her about a chapter she wrote in a book just recently uh, about turning 50 years old, women turning 50 years old. But I think we're going to be talking a little bit about men and women and the life change and so on and so forth. So it's somewhat appropriate for Valentine's Day, I think. So uh, welcome to the show, Lisa. Welcome back to the Boom of the Babe, because I know we've had you as a guest, as you were saying before the show, on these very uh, auspicious days. The last time was uh, Christmas Eve that you were with me, and we uh, we did a show at that time as well. So, uh, welcome back. Well, thank you so much, Pete. It's great to be back. Well, for the uh, to enlighten the folks, if uh, if they didn't rem- remember hearing you before, or if they didn't hear listen to our show before, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, where you started out as a very young child. I'm sure, and uh, anything you care to tell us about. Well, thank you. You know, I, I'm i a psychotherapist today, and I uh, started off not necessarily wanting to be a psychotherapist, but having what many people thought was a gift for understanding people and very interested in people. And so uh, through my life, that translated into not only curiosity about others, but curiosity about myself. And so I pursued a career in acting for a long period of time and then made a second career choice and um, decided to go into psychology and wanted to study um, people on a different level. And so not only was I acting and writing about people and working in the film industry, I let that go, so to speak, but although I still use that in my practice today, which I call cinema therapy. But now I work as a therapist, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and also a licensed professional clinical counselor. And so I work with individuals, couples, families, adolescents, and I uh, encourage them to find the path that they're looking for and hopefully provide some tools that are helpful to them. Well, I remember that from uh, from the last time you were on the show, and I particularly remember your cinema therapy. Uh, yeah. Give me a thumbnail sketch of that for the for the folks that may not have heard it before. Oh, cinema therapy is a wonderful, what I call, group process or intervention. And and what it is, you know, I have a degree from USC Cinema School, and like I said, I was in the film industry for a period of time and loved the movies, and I find them very healing. And 
having gone through my own um, self-exploration and dealing with life changes and all different ages, movies were a big part of healing. And so what I do with my practice today is I use film as a way to create a group process experience. And so we view either full films in their entirety, which is what it is intended to do, or we use film clips that are illustrating a particular problem, like a scene from a film. And then after we view that particular film clip or piece or scene, we um, explore it in a group setting. And it's very magical in what, it, what happens within this group process of using films as a way to just create discussion. It's almost like an icebreaker. So, and people tend to love movies. It's hard to find people go, I hate the movies. You know, people tend to love movies. So it's a very creative intervention and a form of healing. That as a as a part of your uh, a part of your practice, uh, how often or frequently do you employ that technique? Well, I employ it weekly in a cinema therapy group or a program that I have in my practice, and I'm also part of Safe Harbor clinical team, and I also work with women over at a, a treatment center called Safe Harbor for Women, and so I um, have the privilege of going there and working with those clients as well. So not only do I use it in my private practice in a cin- cinema therapy program that I have here in Newport Beach, but I also go to Safe Harbor and provide cinema therapy there. In addition to that, I'll use film to illustrate, for example, I use a DBT intervention that we spoke about briefly last time too, that I'll use film to illustrate some of the skills that I'm trying to help clients understand. And so I always try to employ film because it's a big part of me as a person, but also it's a very significant healing tool. Well, how how was it then that you, uh, with your your work in film, and as you said, you used to work in film yourself. Uh, How was it then that you came to be a writer and author? Well, you know, writing and and that sort of um, process has always been a part of my life from just journaling as a young adult all the way through just learning how to write for college and then also having a career in development and working with writers. So writing has always been a significant part of my expression or my creative expression. So um, so it, it's not, it wasn't just all of a sudden. I've always had a, a positive response from what I write. Sometimes I'll get certainly my critics who will say, you're just getting a little too heady or really too intellectualized. So pull some feeling into my writing. But the, the whole um, writing has been a significant part of my expression, and also having a voice is a big part of me, too. Well, along the line now, along the way, you've uh, you've met somebody, and they've obviously invited you to contribute to their book. Uh, tell us a little bit about the individual that you've met and uh, about the book that you're a contributor to. Oh, well, this is a kind of a unique experience. Um, it's Andy Charlambeau, and what he has done is he's created a series, series of e-books. And he reached out and said, you know, I'm putting together some chapters that would help women at, at 50 and beyond. And this is a real big age for, um, you know, a lot of women who are turning 50 or approaching 50 or have gone through the age of 50 and are now at the 50 and beyond that we're in an age that's really embracing this time of life. And what Andy was looking for was actually 
nutrition and exercise, which is not really my competence or my scope of practice. So I, I responded and said, you know, I'd love to contribute to your series of books, but I'd like to contribute from a mental health or, you know, a well-being level versus I can't speak to nutrition necessarily, although that is certainly a part of mental health. And he said, please, just do whatever it is that you feel would be helpful to our readers so that we can provide them some insight and some tools about not only turning 50, but how to create balance and well-being after 50. And so I put together some tips that I wanted to share with you and your listeners, too. What is it about 50 and a woman that uh, is this earth-shattering mark? Well, there's a lot of changes that go along with that. And uh, women might be, now I'm generalizing to a certain degree, so I'm going to just speak to perhaps the potential here, is that women are, um, you know, we create life. You know, we give birth and we move life forward. Of course, men are involved with that as well. But women are, um, you know, we have childbearing years. And there's those times in, in that that equates to our worth and our youth and what makes us valuable. So women tend to, at times, fear approaching 50 because there's a grief loss that goes along with that period of time that comes to an end. But it doesn't have to be an impending doom end. It, has, it, it could be, and what I was suggesting through these tips, is it could be a very wise transition if you take care of yourself as you let go of some very real physical, mental changes that are occurring, not only with your body, but with your hormones, your mental capacities, and your values. So things really shift at midlife for women, not to mention they don't shift for men as well, but women have um, a unique experience of this, and not all women are eager to embrace it. So uh, are are you suggesting then that uh, uh, you you mentioned values, a woman's values you feel change at approximately i'm sure i'm sure it's not like the clock strikes 12 and she and and the glass slipper turns into whatever else it was before mm-hmm. or the carriage turns back into a pumpkin but uh uh but at at 50 uh maybe the uh, a woman's values would change i don't understand that well, you know, it, it, values might shift because maybe there was a lot of focus on perhaps, not always, because not all women have children and not all women are married or were married or want to be married, but you're, you're tending to maybe the children. You're tending to maybe a relationship. You're tending to maybe, you know, maybe you're a performer and you're used to being known as somebody who was young, youthful, and marketed as a young performer. So you're continuously tending to things that perhaps shift in priority. doesn't mean you don't tend to your children, for example, but your children are now launched perhaps. You know, we have an economy and some realities of what's going on within our nation that maybe children are still at home, but they're, they're now adults. And so your values might start to shift in terms of where you start to reclaim some of the things that you maybe put on a lower priority, which might be taking care of you. It, it, I, I understand it when you, you say it that way. Uh, I, can, I can see that that happens. Um, 
I, I do know, for instance, that it's happened with my the, with the mother of my daughter. Uh, her perspective on things has changed since uh, since the children are up and on their own, and there's grandchildren. And I will also say that uh, there have been changes in their grandfather myself uh, mm-hmm. as, as years have gone by. So I think I think it's uh, somewhat across the board in many respects. Uh, sure. That it happens, men and women. That this this change in outlook, possibly, uh, is what's what's taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get into some of these tips that uh, the, the ten tips that you wrote in in chapter three of this book. Uh, the first tip has to do with wisdom work. What is mm-hmm. wisdom work, and how does one begin their wisdom work? Well, wisdom is a, an interesting word. I, I think there's an Eastern thought to it. You know, uh, there's a level of depth that comes along with gaining wisdom. And I don't know if there's an actual strategy that you could, you know, employ and say, okay, now I'm going to do my wisdom work. So the word work kind of suggests from my tip that there's a way to do this that's very directive. But it's actually something where you um, – are creating wisdom sometimes without even realizing it. Or it's generally, not always, but generally when you've made some pretty tough decisions in life that weren't so easy or having had to uh, deal with maybe a loss or maybe the disillusions of a relationship, maybe a divorce, you gain a lot of wisdom through loss. It doesn't always have to come through loss, but there's a level of acceptance and willingness that are the doorway to gaining more wisdom and insight to yourself in relation to all things. So wisdom is a work in progress, but many times what I've noticed is that not everyone really takes the time to reflect on some of these very, very significant challenges they've had in their life. And so at 50, sometimes you're forced to look at that, and it could be from just the grieving and the loss of the time in your life. You're turning a page and a chapter in the book and you're now entering middle age and you're halfway through. So wisdom is a a, a way of really taking a look at who you are, what you're about, and reflecting back. So you, you actually have to make um, uh, a conscious effort uh, a conscious choice a conscious choice to do that is that correct well wisdom is kind of funny because it can catch up to you even if it's not conscious so the wisdom is kind of that inner depth if you're if you're comfortable with ideas of spirituality and some people might use the word soul or inner soul or inner being or an intuitive sense of connection to what is so that's the part of wisdom that um that life delivers you these opportunities to feed it. And what I mean by that is music can feed wisdom. People like yourself can encourage people to gain insight, that you're speaking to that inner part of the being that I'm going to suggest we all share, but needs nurturing and reflection and feeding. It's like soul food. You know, remember Chicken Soup for the Soul? People love those series. You know, those sorts of books or spiritual images, or things that really nurture that inner self. Uh, is, it, is, it a, is it always a spiritual pursuit? 
That's a, such a good question. It's been asked from, from me before. And, um, you know, I struggle figuring out how to say that it isn't. So I would suggest, and this is a delicate question because not everyone is comfortable with the ideas of religion or spirituality or these thoughts or or considerations, but if whatever word is comfortable, it has some level of a sensory connection to what is it, what is part of our life. So, for example, the smell, the taste, our vision, all of these are connective sensory experiences to connect with what is around us. So is that spiritual? Yes, but maybe not the best word for all people. Does that make sense? Uh yeah, I, I think I think I can I can make sense of that. Um uh, the spirit or spirituality can be many things to many different people. Yeah. Uh, and I agree. Uh, and and for that reason almost anything can be deemed to be spiritual. Now what is spiritual for you? I can look at it and say, oh, I'm not spiritual about that. Uh <laughs> you know and and, uh, and be perfectly fine with feeling that way and it doesn't affect you one iota as long as you have your own. That's right. Okay. So what uh, talk about uh, you you mentioned here in some of these things that you sent me uh, what are the dimensions that wisdom can work or wisdom work can take? What are the dimensions that wisdom work can take? Well, you know, Ironically, wisdom can come from listening to music. It can be having a conversation with someone. Um, it can have an experience of an, what we call an aha moment. Mm-hmm. So the, wisdom can come from places where you had no idea. You could be watching a sitcom. In fact, I was talking to my mom the other day, and she said I was watching this old rerun of Roseanne, and I couldn't believe it that I completely related to this character and it made me understand myself on a a level that I would never have thought. So wisdom can come to you in a variety of different ways, and it's very playful. Life is very playful. It's always delivering us these little ironies in life, these little coincidences or coincidences or whatever we want to call it. It's this magical, serendipitous kind of way that life kind of plays with us by suggesting that there's more to this than just, you know, the day-to-day task-oriented, get things done, move forward, make it quick, be reasonable, you know, those sorts of uh, more aggressive, not aggressive, but more life survival type of mode. Wisdom is always kind of playing around with us, helping us see the lighter things in life, and it can come in a variety of different forms. Well, that's uh, very interesting you say that, uh, that your mother experienced that through watching a replay of Roseanne. I mean, that, that would be, I, I never realized that that woman was wise even in her in her company <laughs> sketches. I'm telling you, it comes out of nowhere, but yeah, yeah. whatever worked, right? Right, absolutely. Um, mindfulness, you say, helps us stay in the moment. How does that How does that work? Well, you know, I loved your introduction when you said, you know, happy Valentine's to everybody. I hope you're finding the love of your life. Or, and then you suggested or just being in the love or loving today or loving this moment or loving yourself in this moment. So really tending to the moment. You know, we're all creating. We'll never be back in this moment. Each day, each moment is a new experience that we haven't had yet. 
So living in the moment and really training yourself. Now, this isn't just automatic. This is where you really can consider some tools. And mindfulness has an Eastern-based thought to it. I draw from it from dialectical behavior therapy to help clients of mine work on living in the moment. And what that means is to observe what is. And that can be as small or significant as observing your breath and being here in the moment being present, noticing your thoughts now, and letting things go. So living in the moment is a very, very significant piece to being alive. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Uh, I know there's some, but then again, there are some moments that that, that you don't want to live in, so you got to get rid of them. Talk to me about it, yeah. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> get rid of this moment right now. That's, that's right. Let's run from that one. Yeah, yeah exactly. but, you know, it, you know, look at the, you know, if you really, you know, honestly take a look at those moments, and it doesn't always have to be as serious as perhaps, you know, what it may sound like, but if you can kind of take a look at what's happening around you and just be present, it's less threatening, it's less fearful, and it can help with, you know, anxiety, it can help with a lot of fear-based issues that people are dealing with, to just be in the now. And that can be from life-threatening illnesses, to just being present with your grandchild, you know, don't worry about the cell phone for a moment. Just take a look at this little being that's playing with you right now. You know, sure. and it's it's very, very now. It's very present. Uh, this is because uh, you mentioned uh, this briefly in in talking about mindfulness and living in the moment. Uh, humor, have a sense of humor. Uh, you hear that a lot. Uh, it, and the other thing that that uh, you hear people say is, well, you got to laugh to keep from crying. Uh, <laughs> so, how does that, how does that uh, how does that figure in to your tips? Well, you know, I, I think if you can, you know, I, I I have a family filled with a sense of humor. I mean, these individuals are, you know, they're pretty hilarious. But some of the things they have done in their life, I mean, my God, you know, it, it's pretty dramatic, and yet. What the, what I've learned through life is having a sense of humor is probably one of the greatest gifts you can have Is because life is pretty hilarious if you really want to look at it. It's, it. There's sadness underneath a lot of what we're dealing with, and that's not to you know suggest that there isn't because life has sadness and trauma and things that are very, very difficult to deal with. Being human and being alive is quite a courageous experience. But if you can maintain kind of the irony of life, and see things from just a humorous perspective, you're probably going to get uh, a little less uh, depressed. It can actually help with anxiety. Um, It can help with substance-related issues or eating issues. I mean, just notice and be kind of in the moment and try to figure and see a, a, a perspective from something that has a level of humor because it's pretty hilarious. Well, you know, this is the great cosmic joke, after all. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're all living the great cosmic joke. Uh, I know we're all fighting to be the key player. Like I'm the I'm the lead role. No, you're the lead. Anyway, I, exactly. I can get off on that, but it, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> your tip number four is practice radical acceptance. Now, mm-hmm. I, when I think of the words radical, uh, <laughs> the word radical, I think of. Uh, not everybody accepts that, and because that, in other words, that's radical. 
that's that's out there in left field somewhere, uh, and that's something that's just kind of standing out there, and people are going, uh, they're marveling at it in one respect, but they're looking at it and they're saying, oh, that's weird, that's radical. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what what do you how do you do how do you practice radical acceptance? Is it a case of is it a case of accepting radical things or thinking radically yourself? <laughs> well, the word radical, you know, what what uh, first of all, I drew that upon uh, again that dialectical behavior therapy has a, a skill called radical acceptance, and what it means in this particular context is that radical means fully, not kind of, not sort of, not somewhat, but fully accept what is. So what that means in this term is that radical fully accept, in other words, what is. Give up the resistance, which equates to suffering. Give up the pushback. It's not going to change because you think it should. Now, what happens there is when we can radically accept things as they are, which is a very, uh, uh, can be very challenging, it actually loosens us up to change. It doesn't mean we agree that something is right. That's not radical acceptance necessarily. But it does mean we've given up the suffering by not resisting. And so radically accepting, for example, the transition in life or just being accepting of what is, is a huge piece to, first of all, change, but also just decreasing the suffering to maybe endurable pain. <laughs> you know, you're just decreasing it to a point where, okay, I can't change it. I've got to accept this somehow. I just need to radically accept. And it opens the door to new beginnings. Okay, let me just put this uh, in this question. Uh, okay. a, a passing of uh, a loved one or a parent, uh, or a parent, not a parent, uh, a parent, uh, is that, is that uh, when you deal with that, is that radical acceptance? Well, when when we're talking about grief loss of a person, and this is respectful for each um each individual case. You know, there's there's stages of grief if we wanted to take a look at that, and acceptance is one of those stages. But sometimes it's hard to accept the passing of a parent because the preparation of that wasn't, it just wasn't something that was anticipated or it was feared or it just wasn't fully accepted prior to the occurrence. Now, this is a very delicate process here that one has to be mindful of taking care of themselves that maybe these are things that you never quite get over, but they're things that you don't resist have happened. It has happened. It's it's a delicate experience for them to accept it, but it's one that deserves self-care, sometimes anger, you know, like why did you leave me here on planet Earth, or sometimes just resistance to why did you do this to me while you were alive and didn't resolve it. So there's a lot of things that go along with a parent, for example, that passes. But ultimately, or anyone, but for this instance of your question, a parent, ultimately part of the tips that I provide in tip number 10 is really to look at death and dying and also what that means to you. And when you become more comfortable with those ideas, not that we can, we have to go through it to understand it, and we all get to go through it, 
but really trying to accept that this is part of life. Life and death happen, and life begins again, and people will die. And it's hard, but it's it's something that we have to radically accept at some point to release us from more suffering. Does that make sense, Pete? Did I answer your question? Well, I think I think so. I, I mean, I'm I'm I, I, I relate I'm relating this to um, my father's passing as a, as an example. Uh, he'd been sick. He had dementia, Alzheimer's, and and so on, and he wasn't well. And uh, he was he care facility, hospital, care facility, hospital. And then after the last hospital hospice, and nine days later, he was gone. And uh, it was it was it was peaceful and uh, in, in essence, in some ways, very beautiful. And uh, it was pretty radical uh, for the family uh, to have him be gone. But uh, it was very easy to accept. Um, am I anywhere near the ballpark there? What you're talking about? Yes, I mean, because you went through the process of his transition, which, you know, it, it, it's a process of letting go. I mean, mm-hmm. the mind, mental, it's, it's, it's a process for the person going through it. Now, I've heard this from parents and, um, and also, you know, people who are dying that are close to someone, that there's this tendency to want them to be okay. But they're struggling probably more so than the person sometimes dying. But it's very hard to be around um, or challenging, not always, but challenging if you're not supported or prepared or willing to kind of look at all this. This is very difficult stuff. But if you're going through it, that this is just part of the process of the body, the physical, the mental, the the life is now coming to a transition. And in some philosophies, it ends at that point. In some philosophies, there's a continuation of what is, and maybe the parent is, you know, a feeling that's around them at all times. I mean, some people feel that even though someone's physically not with us, they feel their, for example, parent with them nearby. But that's within each individual experience, respectfully, within within your heart. And so to accept, for example, your father's death is might have been because you had gone through the process of his letting go with him. You walked through it. It's harder if all of a sudden it's very shocking, you know, and it, it wasn't anticipated. Right, right. I can understand why that would be the case. I mean, because mm-hmm. with, with with his particular disease, it was a foregone conclusion. It wasn't a yes. question of if, it was a question of when. Uh, right. And there's a certain amount of, it's a gradual step down, you know. It's one one step one step forward and two steps back kind of a deal, you know. Right. Maybe have a little improvement, but then you go past that improvement on to the next thing, and and that's it's, it's a long process. And it's but it in some cases is easier to accept because you've seen it, and at some point you reach the thought. At least I did. You reach the thought process in your mind that he will be better off because that's what he wants anyhow you know what i'm saying and so and there was no fight there was no battle it was just a a gradual and and peaceful pass um create a physical balance uh you hear a lot about people matter of fact i had a guest on the show yesterday that um let's see i think i think i have her book right still here on the desk yes and hers choosing the life you were born to live 
how mm. changing your thoughts will change your life. And well, I like was, that. And she was about talking about balance. And uh-huh. she was explaining that balance is different things to different people. Uh, I'm very interested in hearing your perspective on balance. Well, uh, you're, here, you're, here you're talking about a physical balance, but I mean, uh, she did dis- she did discuss that as well. Well, the reason I pulled physical balance, and when I'm talking physical, I'm talking about getting plenty of rest, eating nutritiously for mood, um, and just health, overall health, um, exercising that's appropriate for your body, um, looking at how you can better help yourself throughout the day, whether it's a yoga practice or whatever it is that's going to physically balance the body in a mental health consideration. Now, what I the reason I put that there was that part of these, uh, like getting plenty of rest, can affect depression. It can affect anxiety. It can affect the day-to-day reactions to other people and responding to people in a more mindful, responsive way versus reactive and tired and fatigued and angry and short-tempered. So the idea behind that was to help clients um, at least know that that's relevant to achieving balance mentally is that getting plenty of rest that's appropriate for you, for your body. You know, some people can operate on less rest than others. You know, I, for example, I need eight hours. I'm cranky as can be, and everybody knows it. <laughs> but, you know, okay, you didn't get enough rest last night. Or, uh, you know, when people can notice when I didn't do my exercise or my yoga or whatever. It's just part of how I achieve a personal balance. But what I'm noticing is that physically taking care of yourself has a mental effect. And that's why I put that tip in there, is to really be mindful of, like what your other guest was suggesting, what is your balance? You know, at this point in life, it can't be, you know, um, Red Bulls and, you know, a, a protein bar. You know, it's just got to be a little bit more considerate of what the body is going through and the transition in life. Does that make sense? Well, it does. And, and the reason it, it does is uh, uh, in the conversation I had with uh, our guest, and I'll just I'll, I'll give you her name. Her name is Christine Sopa. And she wrote mm-hmm. that book, as I said, choosing the life you were born to live. Um, uh, she she comes she comes to it from uh, her own trials and tribulations uh, with a very apparently very severe case of ulcer ulcerative or ulcerative colitis. Uh, that was, as she says, as she tells the story, was life threatening, and she had to make adjustments. Uh, hard driving and so on and so forth and not paying attention. She had to make adjustments and she had to create a physical balance, just as mm-hmm. you're indicating here. And mm-hmm. um, it has to do with food and nutrition and you know, mental outlooks and all kinds of things that, that help with the physical balance. And that's really the kind of the crux of of her whole story in her book is that what you put in your head can be reflected in your body. Uh mm-hmm. So, um, and, and you can you can have control over that. And I'm suggesting, or I'm going to ask you, that uh, part of this 50 age 50 transition, uh, I'm guessing, is quite possibly some of the same things uh, you're both talking in, on parallel tracks. I would guess. Yeah, I would have to agree. You know, I I think that that's a you know a pretty 
general and a, a given. I mean, I think we intuitively probably all know that we need to be taking care of ourselves. Uh-huh. But how we do that doesn't always come to our priority or, like we said earlier, into our value until we might be threatened that it could be gone. So like uh-huh. your prior guest had, you know, the experience of a life-threatening illness, and her body said, okay, you didn't listen to the clues. Maybe, I'm not saying her, but there's sometimes some clues along the way that we don't listen to, for example. I'm generalizing here. That you know that you should probably not, you know, be eating that kind of food or da da, da et cetera. And your doctor said, you know, uh, you know, listen to your body, those sorts of things. So we kind of know what our bodies are telling us if we listen to them. And if we don't, then that's some of our mindfulness work. But generally, here we go. This is when we are faced with a challenge of, do I change what I'm thinking and how I'm taking care of my body, for example, like what your prior guest suggested? Because this is now a point where the old patterns aren't working. I'm in a situation where now my life's at risk. So what am I going to do now? And that's where the wisdom work comes in. That's where new philosophies are introduced. And that's when balance is introduced. And actually, it becomes a very... um, strong part of a person's life because they don't want to lose what they've gained through achieving balance. Well, you guys, the two of you are on so much on the same track. It's just amazing because she said that very thing. She said, now I know, now I'm in tune, now I realize that mm-hmm. when I, she says, my body will tell me that something's wrong and and I have to stop and mm-hmm. take uh, take inventory See what I'm doing, see where I'm doing it, and what can be causing it, and I have to regroup and retract uh, and, and and become more accountable again because I've somewhere I've lost it based on her type A personality. She's just gone flying off down the road, and uh, she says, "I've got to slow down, and if I don't, I'm in trouble." And my body tells me that. So she's done, or she's doing exactly what you're saying people need to do as well. Right. now, your, your tip six, six is create mastery and competence. Uh, well, why don't you just go ahead and explain what that is? Because, I, I mean, when I first read that, I started saying, okay, uh, my thought was mastery and competence in this whole process, you've got to create that. That's something you have to establish and learn to do. Is, am I anywhere near what you're meaning there? Well, I think if you start to do these tips, or, you know, for example, any kind of self-help or any kind of self-reflection process uh-huh. that you're, you will, by definition, start to gain that this, this word self-esteem. Right. And what happens with self-esteem is it comes along when you start to actually implement behavior changes, things that are changing your life, you start to create this level of mastery of your life. And that comes with practice and discipline and self-care and being gentle with yourself when you kind of blow it or you didn't get quite right on that one, you know you probably could have done a little differently or whatever, you're gentle with yourself, but you're continuing to try and create a level of confidence within you. And whatever that means, if that's your health, your relationships, your, you know, your mental framework of how you navigate in the world, how you relate to things in the world, That's a very big piece of self-esteem. But when I introduce these ideas of mastery and competence, I go very slow initially because people who are uh, uncomfortable or not familiar with taking care of themselves, you know, it's very difficult to sometimes step out of some levels of comfort zone. So I say, well, maybe just start small. Maybe 
at say hi to five people today that you might not normally say hi to. And create that kind of mastery of being kind and saying hi. Or a, maybe a bigger step. For me, a bigger step would actually be to fix a computer. <laughs> I don't know how to do that, and I refuse, and I freak out. It's like very un, it's not very attractive when my computer isn't working. It's like, oh, my God, but if I could actually just calm down and listen to my head and just relax and look at the computer and start to try to work through whatever it is I'm struggling with, then maybe I could actually gain some confidence in this area and not be so reactive. So when I say mastering confidence, it comes in a variety of forms. It means practicing self-discipline and trying things that you might not always want to try, but just do it anyway and practice until you've mastered it. And uh, would would this be an appropriate place to add it's okay to fail? Oh, my Uh, God, uh it and and as as Deborah would say uh fail forward fail Ooh, like fail in trying something that you've not tried before and you do that and then you're learning in the process so That's it's a, it. it's, a, it's a fail forward type situation it's uh, think of it as falling you fall forward rather than fall flat on your back You know, it's funny you should say that, you know, because my father said something interesting, and he told me um, that he actually had a mentor when he went to architecture school at Cal Poly, and he said that this mentor, he uh, he came from another country, he had the language barrier, but he got into Cal Poly and studied architecture. And this particular professor was working with him, and my father wasn't getting it quite right. And he was continuing to work and work to get it right. And the professor said to him, you realize that those that are doing the work are the ones that are going to be failing initially. So it's it's the ones that are actually trying. Yes, is failure part of succeeding in creating mastery? Absolutely. It's dealing with that, picking up the pieces, and going and moving forward and failing forward, as Deborah said. Well, there's a song about that. You're probably too young to remember. Pick yourself up, know. dust yourself off, and start all over again. There you go. I uh, like it. And that's an old song, and I'm an old guy, and that's why <laughs> I remember it. <laughs> well, I'll listen to it, for sure. <laughs> I don't even know who sang it, quite frankly. <laughs> uh, shoot. Uh, tip number seven, practice willingness versus willfulness. This, I think, is really, really important. I, I just see that so much. I think if people would be willing rather than willful, our whole country would be better. Oh, my goodness, yes. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah. That's, yep. how, and, how does, and how does it work in uh, in your scenario? Well, the reason I put that there is that um, that falls in line with the radical acceptance. You know, I, again, this is uh, drawing upon some BBT skills work that I use, but really when we're looking at willingness, we're actually able to start seeing things and radically accepting things as they are. You have to first make the decision to turn your mind to be willing. Willful is resisting what is, trying to control, clutch, hang on manipulating other people or manipulating your body or manipulating anything that you feel you need to control is very willful and it's very stubborn and it's very strong and it's very tenacious. 
But willingness is a very gentle way of or being willing to not know everything and being willing to look at things differently and be able to desire to accept things as they are. So when I put willingness, that's where I'm going with that. So it's 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 um is is it? I'm gonna say, I was gonna start make a definitive statement, but I'm gonna ask: Is it uh, is it more along the lines of uh, know what you can control and be willing to accept what you can't? You know that's yeah. I, I mean, I've heard that. You know, the Serenity Prayer says that, and right. uh, you know, I think it comes into a variety of different kinds of philosophies, whether spiritual or otherwise. Yes you know, pick your battles or, you know, look at what you can do. You can't change others, change yourself, that sort of thing. Um, yes, in answer to your question, yes. I, I think if there's willingness to, um, it, when you're in conflict, for example, or you're having conflict within yourself or you're conflict with other people or a situation or circumstance, if you have a level or a willingness to maybe lighten up, and what I mean by that is not in a derogatory, I I don't know if anybody's ever told you to lighten up, but I've certainly heard that. So lighten up, you know. But on the other hand, maybe that's a suggestion to see things and be willing to look at things differently and Uh be willing to listen to that internal wisdom, maybe, and also that internal compass of just being able to listen to what your heart's telling you. What your inner being is telling you. I think that that's a big part of willingness. And it's a great guide. But if you're too busy being willful and trying to manipulate and control circumstances and all of that good stuff, that's going to get away in the way of that whole experience of willingness and the gifts that willingness can bring to you. Another another way of saying it might be just chill out. Just chill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just chill. That's like, right. Take it. Take a chill pill. <laughs> take a chill pill. That's right. And then, then, and then, yeah. let's get to the willfulness thing because everybody knows somebody that says uh, they say, "How did you do this?" I just willed it, and uh, you know, I just willed it to happen. I just, in other words, I, I forced it. Um, mm-hmm. You. you People will think they can will a victory uh, of sort, and it really always seems to be uh, used in the terminology of victory or uh, being victorious. I just willed myself to do it. Uh, that can be that can be damaging, can it? Well, I don't know. You know, it's really um, if it's coming from a competitive edge or if it's coming from a place of achievement that's motivated by an insatiable need to be better or do something that's based on competing and you're really not relishing the moment of why it is you're willing or willing something in or being willful to get it or, you know, accomplish it. If it's being from a driven place that's more of some level of need that is not necessarily of um, inspiration or uh, a level of wanting to do something because you feel it's a purposeful need or some 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 kind of motivation that's going beyond um, doing the right thing for yourself. 
Mm-hmm. I think that that has a potential, and I, let me know if I need to clarify that. I think there's a potential to um, that that stuff's going to catch up to you. Yes, I agree. And you know what I mean by that, Pete? So yeah, I think so. Now that doesn't mean being willing is like you kind of be a you know a doormat and everything kind of just happens. You know, things like you'd be lazy. That's not what I'm talking about. That's right. more because being willing and you know really inviting life in and doing the things that come with willing, you're you're going to be very busy because life dances around you. It's just a different kind of accomplishment and achievement uh-huh. and experience. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, I under, I think I understand that. I I was I, when I think of the word willful, I think of a willful little bratty child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you could be in a very an adult body, ironically. <laughs> That's very true, very true. We're getting down to the end here, and we're doing pretty well on our time for the day, It's uh, which is great. Uh, communic- number eight is communicate your truth. How can clear communications impact our relationships uh, that's I'll, that's almost after everything else you've said that's almost self-explanatory but go ahead let's talk about it are you sure because i kind of like no, to no, no, no. i'm curious okay all no, right no. okay so uh what, what i meant by that is that through this process you're going to be coming more and more aware of who you are what you're about you're cultivating your voice and how you feel and that seems like, well, yeah, that seems like a natural progression, but not everyone knows how to do that. Not everyone knows how to explore what's really truthful for them. And it's not always easy because sometimes when you share your truth, people might not like what they're hearing. But it's very important to be truthful and work from the place of truth. And when we're talking about people, you know, really wanting to come from a place of truth, that doesn't mean you have to be revealing and holding, you know, telling everybody your truth all day long. It just means that you know what you're about. And when you come from this space of your own inner truth, it affects how you communicate with other people. And people can read you. I mean, what you say is one thing, but what's really coming from you is what they're really intuitively listening to. So knowing your truth and how you say it and how you demonstrate it is very important of how we communicate with others and, at first, how we communicate with ourselves. So the first step is know your own truth. second step is now how you convey it to your relationships, to life, to your occupation, to your family, et cetera. Well, that, that, that's, uh, that's very interesting because, I mean, I've had situations where uh, somebody would say to me, uh, I, I say, well, this is what I meant, or... Uh, whatever the case might be, and I, I would say something as an example to Deborah, and she would say, I, "I'd say, well, this is what I meant." And she says, "Well, tell your face." Uh, <laughs> 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 because apparently I was I wasn't communicating it physically. <laughs> apparently <laughs> not. <laughs> you need well, to go do some you. mastery and confidence in that area. <laughs> It's 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 funny. It doesn't happen often, but she does say it every now and then. I said, "Well, I am happy." She said, "Well, tell your face." Uh, <laughs> You're fine. 
So, but I mean, I, I can. Uh, you're, when and your communication really is more than just a verbal. It is. It is verbal, physical. It's. Uh, it's everything about you. It's. Uh, it, in the in the business world, it's your brand. You, you know, when people see, hear your name, uh, in the business world, as far as your brand, it's your ex- the expectations they have of you. And when you see people out and about, and and you're either frumpy or you're uh, in a, in an up mood and you're looking happy and 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 somewhat uh in tuned and attuned uh people people know that and they're yeah. they're they're more willing to uh willing to speak with you share with you uh and uh and and listen to what you have to say and then in turn your chances are good you're willing to more willing to listen to what they have to say too, because you know as well as anybody. Obviously, you're in the business. You walk into a room, you see the frumpy person sitting, standing over there, being all sulky. Well, I don't want to go introduce myself to them. What the heck do right. I want to go? To, what do I want to get into that thing for? You know. Right. Uh, and, and it's like it's like uh, it's like the, that that Penix character that's got the cloud over his head. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. don't want to. I don't need to get in that cloud. You know that kind of thing. No. Right. Yeah, it's very attractive when you're coming from your truth. And I think that people are actually intuitively or consciously yearning for that, is when they mm-hmm. see someone, um, you know, and that can be, you know, easily translated into a lot of pressure on people. But, you know, and knowing that too, personally, it's it's sometimes hard to keep up the persona of what appears to be, you know, confident and all of that. Sometimes you just want to unravel and just kind of be a little floppy and grungy. It doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> you're not necessarily on top of your game. But in, in, but in essence, like what you were saying is, is that when people are really in touch with their truth, which doesn't always have to be the, the, you know, the epitome of what success looks like, it could be that you're really going through something, but uh-huh. you're willing to be truthful about it. It's attractive because it's human. And there's a certain amount of vulnerability attached to that, I think, too. Yes, I agree, which is strong. Being vulnerable is really courageous. Right, right. Number nine, be gentle, interested to stick to your values, be kind. Uh, Mm. This is the the trickiest balance, caring for ourselves while caring for others. Uh, And then the question is, how can women stay in touch with being kind to themselves and to others. Well, the reason I put that there is that, you know, sometimes as women, there's a potential to be, because we are kind of wired in many times as caretakers. And sometimes the balance of caretaking oneself is deserving some, you know, some time, some tending to. So what I mean by that is to be gentle with yourself. And by doing that, it needs to really take the time to be with you. And, you know, it's not always easy, male male or female. I know you mentioned women, but, you know, male or female, it's not always easy to just sit and be with you or take a walk with you. So being gentle with you is really learning how to be with you in a gentle and accepting way. And sometimes that starts, many times I'll work with clients to soften their gaze Notice their thoughts, breathe, be kind. If someone walks by, smile gently, even do little half-smile skills. Um, Just be gentle and kind in life and stick to your values. It doesn't mean you're, you know, 
hammering everybody over the head of sign my peace treaty or whatever it is. It just means stick to your values. Stick to what matters to you. And that's a very gracious place to be. And so I encourage women to do that because I think many women can get very hardened, very angry, very frustrated if they haven't really taken the time to really reflect on themselves. And that sometimes means that, means that you're not always with your girl. You're not always with your friends. You might be more um, inclined to take some time to be with just you. And mm-hmm. it doesn't mean isolating. It just means being with you. Mm-hmm. Being a gentle soul. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, sometimes very tough to do, is to be yes, a gentle is. soul. Yes, this, this is a big one, I think, and we're we're coming down to the to the to the short rows, as I as I think I said the last time you were on, we're down to the short rows, as they say in farming, in the farmland. <laughs> um, <laughs> number ten, explore the meaning of life and death. How can creating comfort with the prospect of death improve your experience of life? This is huge, and I think it's huge based on the fact that uh, I, I don't know your age exactly, but uh, as you're, if you're a baby boomer, you're you're dealing with uh, the impending demise of your parents, possibly depending on your age, the and the health conditions, the impending demise of a spouse. God forbid you ever have to bury your children, but uh, this this is. Being able to explore that meaning and be able to deal with it is just gargantuan in my book. Uh, how, let's talk about that. What are your What are your thoughts here? Yeah, it is a big, big topic, and it's a very delicate topic, but it's important for you know living in life, and um, you know to to really explore death uh, is I think integral to being comfortable living in the moment. So when when we take the time to really um, explore what it means and be willing to gently consider what is this all about? Why am I here? And I think these questions sometimes come naturally at this, that, that, and I'm approaching 50, by the way. So I'm in my late 40s. And so I've gone through the death of a parent and some life-threatening illness with parents in general. And so when, you're, when you go through death, there's, not, there's, there's a tendency to actually reevaluate what life means to you. And suddenly death becomes more closer than it was perhaps 10 years ago, that you really start to consider, what, what is this about? Where am I going? What do I want to leave behind? What's my legacy? It doesn't mean money and finances necessarily, but it could mean what is what kind of meaning do I want to leave behind? Who am I? And these questions come at different periods of time, but sometimes more often than not around 50. And it's a very important piece to learning how to live now. But if we don't look at that and we don't want to look at it or face it, then there's problems in the end. I mean, there's problems of accepting what is. There's fear of death. It's, it's a very scary process if we haven't prepared for it. So now's the time to look at it, consider it. It's going to come. We all share that. And how you feel of what it means to you. And that way, the fear decreases in intensity and the life increases in 
living in the moment. I think that's very well said. Um, the 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 fear of the demise um, is, I think, universal to some degree. You have those that say, well, I don't fear death because I believe in an afterlife or whatever the case might be, but there's still an unknown. You, mm-hmm. you, there, there's still something there. You can trust, you can have faith, you can believe, but... Uh, I don't know of many people that are just so at peace with the thought of dying that when it comes time, they're not still going to want to live. <laughs> you know what right. I'm saying? So I mean, right. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of mixed uh, a lot of mixed emotion there. Uh, right. Whether you're dealing it with it yourself or whether you're dealing it with dealing with it as it regards uh, a loved one. So. Uh, right. I I don't want to end this conversation on a downer, but I mean, uh, dying is part of life. That's all there is to it. That is the yeah. way it is, and we all have to be able to accept that and use all these ten steps that you're talking the previous nine steps rather to, and it, and it probably just comes to that, doesn't it? That uh, yes, it does. uh, they don't put fences around cemeteries uh, because people are willingly staying out there dying to get in. Um, <laughs> So I thought I'd just lighten it up just a bit. <laughs> That's a lot of humor. I think you just used tip three. <laughs> yes, uh, I'm going to die. Oh, God, help me. Okay, please. <laughs> okay. Oh, my goodness. Well, Lisa, we are down here to the, sh- the, the short rules. As a matter of fact, we're on the last plow swath right now. Uh, why don't you go ahead and give us your shameless self-promotion about how people can get hold of you, uh, how you work with folks, anything that you want to tell us and tell our listeners uh, about uh, contacting you. Oh, well, thank you so much. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the Boomer and the Babe show. I mean, I'm always so proud when you guys have me on, and I, I really appreciate it. And I'm so glad that we could explore these tips with your listeners. Um, with respect to me and getting in touch with me, I'm more than happy to help your listeners in any way I can, whether it's through me directly or just providing resources, and you can do that by calling me directly. I have a direct line, Lisa Bahar, B-A-H-A-R. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical counselor. My number is 949-212-2081. I'll say that again, 949-212-2081. I'm on Facebook, so you can follow us on Facebook. We also have a Twitter, so we're always Twittering and letting you everybody know, including being on Boomer on the Babe. And also we have a website, lisabahar.com. And I'm more than happy to help out in any way I can and ease any kind of tension or feelings people might be going through. It would be an honor. Well, Lisa, you're rapidly becoming our uh, our resident psychotherapist uh, here on <laughs> the Babe Show. And uh, we're, we're glad to have you back again, and I'm, I'm sure we'll – going to find an opportunity to do it uh, yet again after this. So, uh best best of uh best wishes to everything that you're involved in and continued success and uh, look forward to the next time we talk. Thank you so much, Pete. Say hi to Deborah too. I will do that. Take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. And you've been listening to Ms. Lisa Ahar, psychotherapist, family uh, and marriage marriage and family uh, therapy expert. Uh 10 tips on what it's what it's about to turn 50 and what you can do with uh, with your 50th birthday, being a lady or a gentleman, because a lot of these tips go both ways. 
uh, and it's uh, always good information. And you can contact her. You can just probably just Google Lisa Bahar, psychotherapy, and psychotherapist, and she'll be able to help you out. So any needs that you have along those lines, be sure to give Lisa an opportunity to help you. Uh, with that, we'll say goodbye. We'll be back again. Uh, I think we're going to show again tomorrow that we're going to be back with. If not, it will be next week. And we hope you uh, come back and join us again. Have a great day. Have a great tomorrow. And have a great weekend. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Take care. interesting conversation to the world. Be sure to follow us on Twitter where we tweet as Boomer and Babe and on Facebook as Pete Peters 47. As always, you can friend us on Blog Talk Radio or sign up for our newsletter at boomerandthebabe.com. Email us at host at boomerandthebabe.com with any of your comments. Remember, at 50, you're just getting started. 